Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unfiltered Coffee Podcast. I am Spencer Adekatis, green buyer and head roaster for Peixoto Coffee. Hey, guys, my name is Eddie Padilla. I'm a former store manager and coffee educator through Arizona Coffee Social. We are your hosts. In this podcast, we aim to catalyze conversations around coffee science, business, ethics, philosophy, culture, and tasting. We are so thankful to have you, and now on to the show. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about coffee species and varieties of those species. Before we get too into all this, we're going to start with some descriptions so you kind of know about the different words that we're using because they're specific to varieties. So Eddie's going to kind of dive into that. And then we're going to talk about some history, again, like the different species, some stuff about where it came from in Ethiopia, the genetic diversity and the resistance, yield and quality that is really important to the overall picture and kind of where we might be heading to crisis. And then maybe some flavor profiles on different varieties that are out there so we can put some words around those. But first, we're going to start with some descriptions from Eddie. So he's going to start us off here. Yeah, so we do hear varietal being used in the coffee world, whether it's concerning coffee directly or its relevance to agriculture and in order to understand what it means we should first define taxonomy so taxonomy is a study of general principles of scientific classification and this is in regards to plants and animals there are seven main taxonomic ranks for those and those are kingdom phylum class order family genus and species And then after species, that's where it gets a little bit more genetically specific, and that's where variety comes. So variety is a naturally occurring variation within a particular species. And then another important thing to differentiate is varietal and variety. One example I like using with people is, so a farmer will grow the Bourbon variety coffee versus a barista will make you uh, a shot of espresso with a bourbon varietal but we may use them interchangeably i don't think it's that big of a deal but there is a difference another thing to define would be cultivar which is a term that comes from cultivated variety meaning that specific plant was selected for particular characteristics these are generally less stable than varieties and will sometimes commonly revert back to their parent characteristics. Another thing to define would probably be hybrid. These are coffee varietals that are created through crossbreeding between parents either interspecifically or from distinct parent lines. Maybe another kind of thing that we hear pretty constantly is heirloom. So heirlooms are varieties that are the result of natural selection occurring before human interference. So that's why you get a lot of Ethiopian coffee that you'll see this label heirloom because it's a lot of a good way to think of it is just wild coffee. Anything else that you think we need to define? No, I think that's pretty good. That's about all the different things. You said a lot there. So uh, a couple of things to give some examples. So We're going to talk about apples as an example because it's an easy one. But for the apple, it would be species would be the apple. And then the varieties of apples would be like Fuji. Fuji? 
I think so. Is that, I'm just, I think I'm talking coffee now. <laughs> Honey Chris. I know. Apple, Granny Lady, Smith. Yeah, all those uh, kind of things. Red Delicious. Those would be like your varieties of apples. And so that goes a layer down, but they're all still an apple. So that's the general species there. And then when we were talking about cultivars a little bit, and so yeah, that's something that's really important in coffee. It's where we're actually like trying to pick certain traits, usually based on its yield and its resistance and actually trying to uh, combine two varieties together for those traits. So you usually pick one variety with really good quality, flavor, and then you combine it with one that has really good resistance and yield and stuff like that. But what Eddie was saying there is that they can become unstable in that. And there's usually five different layers of stability, starting with like F1, which is completely unstable. And F5, I think, is the most stable version of a cultivar. So basically, they have to keep on breeding them together over and over again and going through generations, about five generations, before they become an actual stable variety. And anything at like the F1 level can only be grafted to basically be replicated or cloned. So they'll have to actually cut off like trimmings and replant the trimmings to keep that going. So there, we have a lot of stuff that were in the F1 um, and F2, F3 ranges, but they're not stable varieties yet, but could show a lot of potential for the future. So lots of important stuff there. Before we go too far into varieties where we're going to spend most of the time, I thought it would be important to talk about the species level a little bit. And we're going to basically be talking about Arabica mostly this whole time, but there's actually some pretty important species out there that may be important, more important in the future, depending on the climate for Arabica and whether we can figure out some of these bigger issues that we'll talk about later. Yeah. Uh, One thing to keep in mind is that there are about 125 different species mm-hmm. of coffee known in the world today, but we do stick to two of these species that are more commercially viable which is Caffea Arabica and Caffea Canifora. So we'll lean a little bit more on Caffea Arabica and its history and, and how there is a genetic bottleneck that, that we'll get into a little bit later. Yep. And the Canifora is the main variety of that is Robusta, which a lot of people have probably heard about. So we'll talk a little bit about Robusta now, or Canifora, the species. So this one is pretty much the best variety for yield um, and production and resistance can grow like anywhere. So they grow it at really low altitudes and it fruits really high. Yeah. It's resistant to all the major diseases like rust and all that that's plaguing Central America. And it also has about 50% more caffeine than Arabica. But the major downside for this species is that it is not very good. The quality is extremely low. It tastes extremely bitter, mostly because of the 50% extra caffeine, which caffeine's actually pretty bittering. And it's just known for really bad flavor profiles. So it's the dream for everything else other than flavor, which is what we were looking for in specialty. So it doesn't really get to shine in our realm very well. I think I've tried it once, and that was at Infusions Cupping, where yeah. Paul roasted I don't know. He has this thing about robustas. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but I tasted it, and Jesus, it was terrible. Yeah, like cigarette buds. <laughs> yeah. It was so bad. But it does have certain traits that we'd want in arabica, but it's just not possible. Yeah, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this later on. But I heard a really good 
analogy for varieties and species, and they basically have a toolkit of things they can deal with. It just it can grow anywhere, and it's yeah, it's really strong. So it's planted for most all of commodity coffee is robusta. So if you've had a lot of uh, Folgers or anything in your past, you're probably drinking robusta and that. And it's yeah, it's planted all over the place. A couple other fun species that are have been actually pushed into specialty because they actually have higher quality. Like Eddie said, there's 125 species, so we won't talk about all of those. And a lot of them aren't even fruiting from what I understand. Um, But these ones actually fruit a lot Arabica. So the first one is called Racemosa. This one was found in South Africa. It's a shrub that's about a third of the size as a normal coffee plant. And it yields about a sixth of what a normal one can of Robusta. So very low yields and is naturally very low in caffeine. They actually, it's, I think, in a territory that it's considered decaf naturally, but it's a 0.38% caffeine content. So really low. I haven't had racemosa by itself, but I've had actually a interspecies mixture of Arabica and racemosa, which is really unique. And we'll talk about that a little bit <laughs> later about interspecies things aren't really supposed to happen, but they there's a really low probability that two species can actually mate and create a new variety. And so I I had one called Aramosa from a farm in Brazil called Daterra. And it was a very good coffee, actually. Was it a natural occurring cross or or was it? I think, yeah, I think it's another one like uh, Timor that we'll talk about later that was just naturally occurring. And yeah, so it's Racemosa and Arabica. And they did a natural, like carbonic, maceration on this thing and it was like really fruity and it's like really sweet and floral and really low amount of bitterness because the caffeine content's so low on these things and really like delicate so actually pretty good so i could see that one being i don't know how fraysamosa tastes like that by itself but that aromosa is pretty good another one is eugenioids how do you say that eugenioids? i don't know how to say that <laughs> something <laughs> like that i think there's probably a better way to say that but People will know what I'm talking about, I think. Um, this has gained a lot of popularity in the last couple of years because of a farm called uh, Finca Amaculata. I might be saying that wrong as well. In Colombia, um, the producer Camilo Mirazaldi rescued the seeds from a dumpster of a genetics lab, actually. And he planted them at one of his farms and realized that he had a whole different species on his hands. So once he had cultivated this thing, which again is a it's a half half the caffeine of arabica, so lower caffeine, and really low yields. It said uh, 320 grams of green coffee per tree, which is nothing. That's like absolutely nothing. And then it, they have these really small cherry sizes, but the flavor on this thing blew everyone's mind. I've had a couple of these now, and they just like distinctly like cereal milk, bubble gum, like really sweet, almost like a purple yam, like really starchy sweet. Have you had one of these? Yeah. Again, infusion. Yeah. I had one that Patrick had sourced and, and then they roasted it and we tried it at this, the public cupping. Mm. And yeah, it was interesting. It, I feel like it wasn't as great as certain arabica coffees that we had there but it was definitely like a step in the right direction where i'm like okay it at least contains some sort of cup quality yeah. versus the robusta that, that they had yeah. yeah i yeah i actually thought it's it doesn't taste anything like arabica to me but it had a flavor profile that was very good in its own unique way like that 
that uh, weird, it really does taste like cereal milk, like fruity pebble milk or something. It's really sweet. Probably the highest sweetness I've ever tasted in coffee. So if, if they could figure out yields on something like that, that might be an interesting path in the future to different uh, types of coffee that we can have. Just mix everything. Mix Arabica and this Eugenoides and then mix Robusta in there too. You'd have the best of yeah. everything. You'd have yield, yeah. genetic diversity. You'd have the yields. You'd have the caffeine that if, if that's what you want. You'd mm. have the, the floral like tasting notes that you'd want from Arabica. But yeah. we're not there yet. Yeah, that's hard to do. Yeah, it's hard to mix them like that and actually get it to work out the way you want. The last one that's the newer... There was just a recently an article, so this might just be a recent thing, and it might not pan out to be anything. It's called stenophilia. So this one just had a really big article about it, and people are starting to talk about it a little bit because it has the diversity of Robusta, so it can grow in, I think they were saying, like 7 degrees Celsius hotter degrees than Arabica, which is about, oh, wow. that would be about 20 degrees hotter than Arabica yeah. in Fahrenheit. It's around there, which is huge because that's a big part of what people are really scared about Arabica is that if climates do start heating up in a lot of these uh, countries, like in Central America, where it's already hotter, that Arabica is not going to be able to survive anymore. So this one being able to grow in temperature ranges that are closer to Robusta is pretty important. And I guess this one was a dominant species in the early 1900s, actually. It used to be the most sold one, like France, I guess it was their, it was the biggest buyer of this coffee. But then Robusta started getting planted and just had better yields. And uh, so people just started replacing this species with Robusta and it actually went extinct. But it's actually found in Sierra Leone, which is really interesting because we don't have any coffee coming from Sierra Leone. And the flavor is supposed to be like as good as Arabica, they say. This one I, I don't have any experience with, so I'll take it with a grain of salt <laughs> that they say that. But it, they explained it like pretty close to how Arabica would taste. And so now they're going to try to cultivate it and actually get it back into production. And it actually may have that uh, magic combo that Arabica has of flavor and yield, and but even with extra temperature resistance and disease resistance, that it might be able to help us in the future where if Arabica gets threatened. So a couple of interesting species there, maybe talking about the future of what we can do. You want to get into the history of coffee Arabica a little bit? Yeah. Cool. So we'll start with when it was really established. So Cafe Arabica's taxonomy was established in 1713, but at that time it was mistakenly designated as I think it's uh, Jasmine Arabicanum or something like that. But then later corrected to uh, the genus of Caffea in 1737 by Carl Linnaeus. And then, so Caffea Arabica is known to have originated in southwest Ethiopia. And then from there, it was transported to Yemen. Here it was forced to adapt and create genetic variations in order to survive in Yemen's drier terroir and poor soil. And then over time, some varieties from Yemen made it back to Ethiopia, resulting in different crop development. And we know that Ethiopia is the birthplace of Café Arabica. It's, it's safe to say that this has the most genetic diversity sure. among 100%, wild yeah. Arabica plants. And then I believe it's 1% that outside of Ethiopia is, it's only 1% genetic diverse. Yeah, I've heard that in Ethiopia, they have thousands of different varieties. And outside of Ethiopia, we have 
at the time of this was like close to 50 uh, varieties outside. So, so that's when you start seeing that genetic diversity narrow more and more down. Yeah. So coffee was then transported from its origins right here in Ethiopia to the northeast region of Harar. And from there, it was transported to Yemen, which is just northeast of Ethiopia over the Red Sea in the 16th century. This is where it was first commercially cultivated. And then Yemen became like the, the powerhouse of coffee in, in that time. So yeah, this is where you, where Tipica started. And then this is where you start seeing that genetic diversity start to narrow more and more down. And then in the 17th century, the Dutch smuggled uh, a single variety from Yemen to the colony of Java, and the Dutch being the masters of agriculture that they were in that time, then they became the largest producer of coffee. I had heard in this that there was, they actually discovered another step before it went mm. to Java, that it actually went to India first. Okay. So I was reading about that on the World Coffee Research, that they actually traced it to India and then to Java, which is interesting. Okay. Maybe we'll link to that, the story of that on there. In 1713, a single Java tree was given to the King of France, which was housed in the first greenhouse in the European continent. This was called the noble tree, which it is thought that clippings from this noble tree, that's kind of what started the, the spread of coffee in the new world. I had one actually other step on this one too. What was it? So on World Coffee Research again, they were talking about how it went from Java. One of the Tipica plants at this point, they traced it to Tipica, had been taken to Amsterdam first and given a home in the botanical gardens. And the mayor of Amsterdam decided to gift one of these plants to King Louis after a peace treaty between the Netherlands and France was signed. Okay. And then from there, King Louis had planted and planted in his greenhouse where then it started producing seeds in which he then started to spread across the world. But this is important because the Netherlands also sent plants themselves to other places. So that's coming from Netherlands and from France into Central America with two different routes. So it's different places are getting this coffee from Netherlands and France, but it's the same. It's all from Tipica. Yeah. So I think that's the overall message here. That's what matters where as coffee is being spread to these new colonies by these people, that genetic diversity is getting more and more narrow as this coffee starts getting spread. Actually, on that too, the main two ones for Central America are this Tipica that we know came from Java. And then Bourbon is like an offshoot of Tipica itself, but is known as like one of the, the main varieties. So to tie it back to the Netherlands and to France, so the Netherlands had all these plants themselves and they started sending these seeds on their trade routes, which ended up getting to southern Brazil, actually. So this would be Tipica. And then from France, so from King Louis, it got sent to Jamaica. So this is where the Tipica and Jamaica would have ended up. And also to Cuba. And then from Cuba, I guess it went from to Costa Rica and El Salvador. So you have some Tipica making it to Costa Rica and El Salvador and Brazil already. And this is about the 1700s I have here. But then at the same time, King Louis has that tree that's still producing seeds in France. So King Louis has the tree that he got gifted from the Netherlands. 
and he, that thing's producing tr- uh, seeds. And in the 1700s, France had their French miss- missionaries bring the seeds to the Bourbon Island, which is a small island off the coast of Madagascar. And I remember reading about this one, and basically they kept trying. It's about three three times they kept sending seeds there. And it's really, it's not island. It suits coffee, Arabica very well. So it didn't do very well in on this island. But from there, those trees stayed and actually grew until the 1800s. And then there was a mission to take them to West Africa. So this is why there's so much per bone in Rwanda, Tanzania, Congo, pretty much all those even Kenya, SL28 is a Bourbon lineage variety. And then, yeah, they also make it to Central America and whatnot. But that's why it's, you have this really weird circle there from, went to Ethiopia, then it went to Yemen, then it goes to India, then it goes to Java, then to the what, Netherlands, yeah. France, back to the Bourbon Islands, and then back into West Africa instead of so a is, huge circle. So is Tipica and Bourbon like the parent coffees of everything that kind of started? They're, they say that Tipica is the parent Bourbon being actually an offshoot of Tipica, but so Bourbon's a, a parent as well in a way. It's a mutation of Tipica yeah. when it was transported to the island of Yeah, Bourbon. at some point it, when it went into the Netherlands or France, the seeds that were getting produced created a different, spent all that time in the Bourbon island, so it probably mutated a little bit while it was there or something, and it became its own variety, but it came from the Tipica trees from Java and all that. I also had a pretty, an interesting note, actually, before we get too far, about the Yemen trips. The major port in Yemen was called Almoka Port, and that was the one where they were transporting most of the coffee out, and the other place it made it to was Java back in the day. So a lot of these names that we have for coffee, like mocha and java, people think came from these two countries growing coffee so long back in the 1700s. And I guess they had, I, I read a story, this might be not fully true, but it's interesting anyway. But they had like distinct flavor profiles coming from Yemen, having a very unique flavor profile if you ever had those. And then also java having its own unique flavor profile. And so they would mix the two in a blend, and like mocha java or java mocha blend. And that was like a big thing way back when, hundreds of years ago. So a lot of people think that like the names mocha java that we use all the time came from that lineage, like it getting spread throughout those countries early in. And those becoming like huge sales points because they both had such unique flavor profiles even hundreds of years ago that they blended them together and all that. So I thought that was cool. So, yeah, that's about all I got there. So that's our, yeah. where Tipica and Bourbon came from. Yeah, so varietals get talked about a lot, but overall, why does it matter? Yeah, this is where the genetic diversity that we keep on talking about plays a big effect. So when you have land race varieties like there are in Ethiopia, which land race are basically just varieties that have grown wildly. You can call them heirloom as well. Land race is the words they're trying to use now. But these are like what's happening in Ethiopia where they spent hundreds of years there mutating and basically like exchanging these tools in the tool belt upon each other and, and basically making a lot of diversity and basically having all kinds of tools to handle all kinds of different situations. So if it gets really hot, they have can handle that. If it gets really cold, they can handle that. If there's a new disease, 
they can handle that. And even if there's a disease, there's so much diversity that it might only kill one variety, but there's a thousand other varieties there. So it's not uh, the end of the world where in Central America and South America and even in Kenya or uh, sorry, in West Africa, where they have just these bourbon varieties, you don't have any of that diversity. So when there is disease like the leaf rust disease that we all talk about and it affects bourbon or affects typica, it basically affects the entire continent worth of coffee, which Brazil and all the Central American countries are some of the biggest producers of coffee in the world, actually are the biggest. And they're all basically on the typical lineage. What you start to see is if climate changes and they can't live in it, or if we get new diseases or if leaf rust disease gets worse or anything like that, we risk losing everything. And yeah, because we're just banking on Arabica. Yeah, That's the only species we're banking on. Yeah, yeah we have varietals, which might lead you to think that there's a lot of differences, but they're genetically very similar. And it makes 70% of the global production is cafe Arabica. And I read in World Coffee Research that's like the least genetically uh, diverse crop species in the world. Yeah. So anything from like rising temperatures, weather like wind, certain pests or disease. Like, really uh, sensitive. Yeah. If Typica or Bourbon, if that uh, certain uh, plant is affected by this, then it's just going to affect everything. And yeah. That means mass crop loss. Yeah, and this is like a real thing. If anyone's familiar with the history of bananas, for whatever reason, this actually happened. So the banana that everyone knows in the early 1900s actually is completely extinct now. And this is actually where a lot of our flavored, banana-flavored things got their flavor from. So like runts that don't taste anything like our bananas that we eat now are actually based on this initial banana that had this very unique flavor profile it was a lot sweeter and actually had a, a peel that was like really slippery. So that's why all those old cartoons had them slipping on bananas where actually like they're not that slippery now because it was actually a whole different variety of banana. And the ways bananas work is that you can't grow them from the seeds. You actually have to clone them infinitely. So once there was a disease that wiped out this species of banana, it literally killed everything and they had to pick a new species that kind of tasted similar to the old one and start cultivating that and basically replant all of Central America and uh, even parts of Mexico and all that, anywhere that was cultivating bananas because it literally went extinct. Damn, so. I should have brushed up on my banana <laughs> history. I'm sure our listeners yeah. have a really good like. I'm sure everyone of... knows that, <laughs> that little tidbit. That's interesting. I didn't know that. But it's a perfect example like of what happens here. So that's why it's important. So any of these, the species level, Arabica is actually not too bad because at least we have a lot of varieties with different, uh, different things they can do basically to deal with problems. The problem with us is that we, we only have a few of those varieties outside of Ethiopia. So Ethiopia is probably, if something bad happens to Typica or Bourbon varieties, Ethiopia will probably still be okay in the grand scheme of things because they have so much genetic diversity within Arabica species there. But the rest of the world will be really hurt in that. Yeah, because we do have varietals that do have tolerances. Some are grown specifically to for resistance against pests, disease, drought. I think 
Yep. What is it? SL28 yeah, it's is drought resistant. resistant. Yeah. Whereas some in Costa Rica might be resistant to wind. And then we have others that are more productive. Yep. So there are some varietals that are more productive. Even convenience. I forgot which one. I believe it's Katura. That's like a dwarf variety. So that's done to make it easier to harvest. You don't want like a six foot Typica. Taller Whereas it's so tall that you have to bend the branches or, yeah. or something to get the These cherries. Things get like 15 to 20 feet tall. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So like you can't pick them by hand. Yeah. So you can only imagine like a mountainous area having a Typica there. Like that's, yeah. it just doesn't make sense. So there are certain like dwarf varieties that are cultivated. Yeah. I think this would be a good time to talk about the Timor mixture that happened. So like we talked about earlier, interspecies mixtures can happen, really low probability that they can actually come together and make a new species. But it actually happened in Timor, which is a country close to Indonesia. And it's basically an island, and it had both Canifora. Uh, Arabica and Fora. Yeah, Arabica and Canifora growing in the same area, basically. And it hit that really low probability that it would they could actually combine, and they created a new, new variety within Arabica with uh, genetic parts of robusta in there yeah which is highly productive highly resistant the cup quality is definitely superior than Mm canifera but you do still taste some of that like weird bitterness that you get from canifera yeah so this is like a miracle variety because it has a lot of the flavor profiles arabica but then it has all the resistance from pests and it has all the yield and all the stuff that we love about Robusta. So this is actually something that uh, they're really working on now because once that happened, since it's a rab still, but it has these pieces of Robusta, it can mate with all the different Arabica varieties. And so now we're combining it with all kinds of different Arabica varieties and basically making new cultivars that have a little bit of this Robusta genetics in there, but are basically mostly focused on the quality parts of Arabica. And so when you mix those two and you get a stable variety out of it, then you get to enjoy both those things. So a lot of the varieties that we we now enjoy in Central America are, they call these Sachimor varieties, and this is that mixture. So varieties like Castillo or Catamor, even F1 varieties that they talk about a lot have mixtures of this. So they're mixing all kinds of good varieties with this Timor variety that happened. And it's that's been a huge saving grace for a lot of countries because they were so reliant on Bourbon and Typica that were really low resistance coffees for a long time yeah if you look at the coffee tree it spreads so much from this this hybrid this timor hybrid you'll see sarchamor like you said castillo and then that splits even more all that stuff's in there yeah so it it opened up a a huge a huge side of this genetic diversity that that was created from this hybrid we talked we talked a lot about resistance so resistance is a loss protection so if you're all your plants get Uh, hit with disease of some sort you basically have to cut them down and you have to regrow the whole plot of land that got infected and this can be a three to five year process to get all those trees back so that's loss aversion if you have any kind of resistance you can you can protect against your loss there 
And then also having higher yields, it means each of the plants will yield more coffee than a normal, like Typica or Bourbon would. So not only do you protect against loss, you also get more coffee per tree. So if you can get both those things, and then like wind resistance, all that kind of stuff, other disease resistance, so you're not losing as much, you can get all those plus quality. You've hit the, the gold mine really for farmers. And it's, it's saved a lot. Most of all Colombian coffees have some sort of Timor hybrid in them these days. It's really hard to even find pure like Typica or Bourbon in these countries. And usually now you, you pay a premium actually for those because the risk that the farmer bears for those coffees and the extra prep they have to do to keep them from getting hit with disease and all that costs so much more that, yeah, finding them is hard these days. Yeah. I think it's important to also touch on, there are many variables that affect the cup quality, like the overall taste of the resulting cup. And variety is something that does play a role in it, but it's not the only thing. You also have to group up everything. You have to group up uh, terroir, if they're, if people are picking when they're ripe, post-harvest processing, roasting, brewing. So everything is going to influence the overall coffee taste profile. But I think it's something that you do have to take into account as well as variety. Yeah, this is where I think processing and fermentation is so important. And that's why we dove, we've dove so far into that. And we've talked about it a lot because, yeah, like Eddie said, the, the variety isn't all the flavor. It, it, sometimes it adds some nice complexities and sometimes you get varieties like Geisha where it's like all you want to taste is the variety. But in a lot of these ones, they, they have a nice stable base. Um, they really, they have good acidity, they have good sweetness, they might have a little bitterness, not overall like highly complex coffees or anything, but not bad. And then if you add good fermentation processes on top, you can create quite a bit of flavor on top of these things. So that's where you can take something that's really resistant um, and really high yielding, and you can still make a really high quality coffee out of it. You think that's the, the future? I, Maybe we are going to have to cross breed some certain yeah. species where a lot of things, uh, maybe the the ending, the cup quality isn't what we want, but with pushing fermentation and, and these good processing processes, we're going to get what we want. Mm-hmm. Is that the future of this? Are we like living in the golden age of coffee right now? And then the future is just <laughs> not that great? Or yeah. what do you think? I think it's definitely... So to go back a little bit, we talked about the, the different stages of cultivating a new variety. And so we talked about F1 through 5, with F1 being the most unstable and then F5 being the most stable. That means five generations of a variety before it's a stable variety. So it takes three years, four, maybe four, to get some like good fruiting trees. So you need to do that five times to get a stable variety. So that, that's 20, 20-ish years before you have a new variety out. So maybe we're worked a lot in the last 40 years on this, and we have some pretty good varieties now. New things keep popping up, and if it takes us 20 years to make a new variety to fix the problems, there's got to be these intermediate steps where we figure out what we can do with other varieties that maybe don't have the best flavors now, but maybe we, they can process them to make them taste good. Well, we figure out how to get the, a variety that can deal with the new problems. Pessimistic about <laughs> this, tough. that 
enjoy coffee now because yeah. coffee's amazing right now. But yeah, it might get worse before it gets yeah. better. Yeah, if it takes that long, it's there's that's a little scary. Fortunately enough, we've been doing a lot of work there for the last twenty years, and hopefully in the next, there's always things being made into F5 level. So maybe we'll get a new variety that's really special soon because they've been working on it for the last 20 years. But there's there's always those gaps and you have to deal with what you got. So I think processing for a lot of farmers can be a, a good way to still have a high yielding, highly resistant plant and still get high quality if they can do it. Who knows if you can do that with all farms. But yeah, I do think that's somewhat of the future because it's much faster to each year learn how to process coffees versus waiting for a new stable variety that tastes good and has all the resistances you need to come into market because there's chances that they never, they get to F5 and by that point it doesn't taste good or anything like, and no one wants it, which just happened a lot. And there's just a ton of varieties out there that no one uses because they just, it, yeah. Yeah, they weren't either didn't become resistant at the end or they revert back. I know you can go once, if they're in the like middle of those, steps they can start reverting back to the major whatever they started with so there's a whole bunch of issues with those yeah it's that's a tough one for sure what's cool though is that we are getting coffee's been in uh central america and all that for so long that we are starting to get some naturally occurring hybrids from central america so what i've what i've heard here is uh like pink per bone which we all talk about as being a really good variety uh, actually is one that's just naturally occurred in Colombia. So that's cool. We're, we're getting a little bit of the diversities from just coffee being around in Colombia for so long that they're actually starting to hybrid and become their own varieties there by themselves. We'll, we'll post a little, there's a little story I think on Cafe Imports about pink bourbon, how it was just found there. And a lot of people don't think it's bourbon. I know I was talking to Herbert about this and he's, it doesn't look like bourbon at all. It oh. looks more like Castillo, but it just kind of got named pink for bone early or something so who knows what the background is there we, maybe if we can we'll do some research and see so if is we it like genetically maybe not uh, for bone yeah it could be he, he thinks it's more castillo based i mean it's like hybrided it might be it could be bourbon castillo coming together into a new variety or yeah. i don't know the genetic and you said this is a naturally occurring uh that's what they think yeah okay because it just popped up in Colombia on someone's farm and they were noticing that like one of their trees was fruiting pink mm -hmm. and so the story is they picked those cherries and they planted them and then it was like a new species so that one has amazing flavor profile and it has good resistances and so that, that's a kind of a nice hope for the future that this more stuff like that might happen since we have so much of this Castillo and all that stuff down there that they might be hybrid mating with yeah. each other so it's pretty cool so yeah to me it's super interesting getting like diving deep into what makes a certain varietal like like you take katura which is bourbon mutation it, i think this is a dwarf mutation that's yeah. like the the one that you know was cultivated and i think it has one gene that's different from bourbon and then you get like stuff like katwai which is i think this was a crossbreeding of Mundo Novo, mm -hmm. which is a Bourbon and Typica yep. with Katura. So you get these like weird, cool cross, either natural or influenced by us, that just are going to thrive in different situations. Another one that's super interesting is uh, Pacamara. This is a, another mutation between 
what was it? Pacas. Pacas and Marogohipe? Yeah, I believe so, which Marogohipe is typica Typica mutation. Yeah. But isn't it that if, I think it reverts back to its, yeah. so it'll revert back to Pacas. Yeah, and, and, and Marogohipe, yeah, I think. I've yeah. heard a lot of people that plant Pacamara that they'll revert back to either one based on what's around them. I was looking at the how those F1, F2, all that stuff works. And it looks like the seeds that come out will be like, one of them will be like Bourbon and the other one will be like Typica. And they won't, they'll be a hundred percent each. And then you have to cross them again. And then it will be like, I, like you have, that's the next generation where you mm-hmm. recross the crosses. And oh. then they have a little bit more percentage of each of them. And then another cross of the crosses until you have it's a majority of that new variety like that mixture yeah. of the yeah. variety yeah it's really complicated on that i'm not a botanist so <laughs> i was looking at these things i was like oh this looks difficult but um another interesting one that's like took the world by storm is gesha originating in ethiopia then transplanted to central america what what are your thoughts on gesha kind of being the crown jewel of coffee and being like the center of everything yeah i'll tell the story a little bit first because i think it's an interesting story it was found on the peterson's farm in panama first so the story kind of goes with them they had a plot usually when you buy land you buy from the the local seed salesman this was before specialty coffee was a big thing so it's not like they were trying to find flavors or anything like that like varieties with crazy flavors they were doing they were just buying the seed stock they planted their whole plot of land and years into production they uh, they noticed they were like cupping specialty it started they were figuring out flavors on their farm and they were always just combining all their lots because this was common to do in the past there's no reason to separate lots if you don't care about flavor profiles or anything like that but they started to notice that they were tasting certain cups that had like unique floral notes they thought and so they decided they're going to try to figure out where this floral note was coming from because it wasn't in every cup which means like one of the plots mixed in you every once in a while you'd cup it and you'd taste it so they decide one year they're going to separate all of their lots and they start cupping it and they find that they have one plot of land that's cupping like incredible and so this is where they've basically discovered that they have this geisha variety which no one knew about at that point on their land and they separated that year and they i think they enter into cup of excellence like win the cup of excellence because it's just so much better than uh, all the other coffees and if you've tasted this one this is like the original geisha so where it all started anything from the esmeralda farm it, they're amazing there's like some of my top coffees ever and then even the seed stock i think probably my top five coffees are from seed stock from them or from their own farm it's it is amazing the quality that this uh, variety produces that they have on their farm. So it's that's amazing. It's it's awesome to have a, a variety that's just so distinct and so good, like yeah. high quality characteristics. So I don't see anything wrong with that. It's I see in the next few years that it, it's just going to keep on getting out there until it's on everyone's farm and it's not going to have quite the level yeah. of like exclusivity as it has. And we've already seen that in the last three or four years that's definitely everyone has it now my only issue is that certain varietals or varieties are designed to thrive under different conditions if this gesha because it's so popular because it's yielding you know great benefits 
gets transplanted in a place that doesn't do well, but it's still marketed as Gesha. Mm-hmm. And what's to say that anyone could just plant it on their farm and just market it and sell it for a lot of money? Like, yeah. what what keeps us from doing that? Oh, it's going to happen, 100%. Yeah. All the varieties have a, a place where it shines the best. Most of them are in Ethiopia. They, they all taste good, like special in a special place. Um, usually you have varieties that mix in with the terroir and happen to just grow really well. And this is based on that genetic toolkit that it has. So if you put a variety in its perfect conditions and you give it all the nutrients and everything to grow perfectly, then it's going to taste really great in some place and it's not going to taste so great in another place that has completely different soil composition and, and all that that the variety can't thrive in. But I, I, I think it's fine. I think to have it everywhere. It's up to the consumers. If it's marketed wrongly, it's this. of course you can say it's a geisha, but are they saying it's 90 point, 95 points like all the other geishas and has all this floral and all this stuff and then you taste it and it's just flat and chocolate or something? I think it's, it's, that's wrong, I think. Yeah. You think it's losing its value, like that name sure. geisha? Oh, for sure. Yeah. You can see it in green prices. When I first roasted a geisha, I think it was five years ago. It was extremely exclusive at that point, and it was almost impossible to even find anywhere. And green prices were really high for it. Now you can find geishas for the same price as like normal coffees. It's been wild to watch as just the price comes down because it's just more and more available to get. Yeah, it's gonna keep coming down, I think. And just like all the other varieties, there'll be really high quality versions of it and really normal quality versions and low quality versions. And we've all tasted that already. Like geishas yeah. that don't taste good at all. And we've tasted that with Bourbons and we've tasted that with Tipicas and we've tasted that with Pacamara. It's all about what the producer can do. Is it safe to say that what's producing a great coffee is more a producer choosing the appropriate variety that it's gonna have less stress it's going to focus less on just surviving versus you know, other aspects of cherry development and, and stuff like that. So it's, is that what farmers should focus on? Choosing the appropriate variety, even if that means you can't have Gesha variety that's well known and it's going to cost a lot of money. Is that the route for a producer? It's really hard to say. It's very situational because you don't know if it's going to be good or bad until it's fruited at your farm and you've taken care of it the right way. So it's, it's three year, four year. I mean, maybe you have a neighboring farm that you can like, oh, these things are going really well over here. Yeah. So maybe I can take some of the same varieties that he has and bring them over. But yeah, it's- That's true. You, you don't know if it's gonna no idea. do well or, yeah. or not. So all you can see is like, oh, this farm in wherever is doing really well with this variety. If I think I can grow it and do it well, I could like also sell it at a premium because this other farm's doing it. And I think that's up to the farmer at that point if the risk reward yep. is right for them to, to put that three to five year bet down and think that they can grow it correctly, then that's up to them. You just yeah. If you have cash on hand and the space on your land and the extra resources to put into it, that's probably a worthwhile bet to put some geisha there and maybe it, it's amazing, you know? It's like it's just that risk. Yeah, and even if it's, if it's not, you sell it like, like the same as your other coffees and it's still like a decent variety. It's I think yeah. geisha is actually, you might be able to look this up on World Coffee Research, but I think it's actually decently resistant 
and it's actually decent yielding for a lot of these varieties. So even at the worst case, if it yields okay and it's resistant, so you're not really risking downside, like loss, and it's not even a bad variety, even if it doesn't taste amazing. It's just like another normal variety at that point. Yeah. How's your Kesha doing on, on the Pichotto farm? This year looks really good. So this yeah. is, and now it's in, yeah, which is now it should be doing well. Excited. Yeah, it looks really good this year. The trees have grown substantially. They were, I think, up below my waist the first year. Oh, man. And now they're, I think, taller than me. So they're really growing. They look, they're fruiting really well this year. And they look beautiful all the way across. Yeah. yeah. Some issues that I've heard in from some people growing gesha in, I think, Colombia, mm-hmm. is that the root system is very, it's not extensive, it's pretty shallow, mm. and it, it gets knocked down oh, easily. Oh, wind? Yeah. yeah. On your on the Peixoto farm, there's not a lot of things like that and stuff that are going to well, mess with it, right? There is, but we have the the ability, since we're not on a cliffside like a lot of people in Colombia, that we can actually build a like wind barriers with sugarcane and banana trees actually. So they'll, and a lot of, most countries they can do this if they have space on the farm for really uh, your nice crops and actually all of it, you'll build uh, wind barriers with with trees. Yeah, and that kind of leads us into innovations on the farm level for certain varieties. So Ethiopia has kind of like this natural canopy. Are producers doing that, Create like planting other certain crops to build coverage for like shade? Are they doing it for wind too, stuff like that? Yeah, there's a bunch of things uh, that you build those for. Mostly, yeah, shade and wind are big things. If a cherry sits in the direct sun the entire time that it's growing and one that sits in complete shade, they're going to have very different flavor profiles based on that. And sometimes the ones in direct sunlight will over-ripen very quickly. And so you'll get this really uneven ones because... You'll have cherries that are exposed, and then you'll have cherries that are underneath the leaves on the same tree. So the ones that are exposed will be fully ripe three, four weeks before the ones under the leaves of the same tree. If you can just shade the whole thing, then you'll have a more uh, even ripeness, and you'll also maybe even slow the maturation down in general, which has been, people think, would lead lead to better flavors, better density of the seed itself. But yeah, there's a lot of innovation around, like, how we can build canopies, natural canopies, and wind blockage with yeah, like sugarcane, banana trees, things that you could like also sell as a side crop and kind of help subsidize your farming costs in a different way as well. So people are thinking about how they can best do that. So right now we have cotto trees in Brazil that I guess they, they're great because they in Brazil they have these really big canopies that kind of shoots up really high and then it kind of goes really far across. And then the roots, for some reason, don't compete for the same things that the tree, the coffee trees want. And so they're looking for different minerals or whatever in the soil than the coffee. And so you can actually kind of plant them like within the rows without it compete for all the nutrients there. So that's that's, cool. Yeah, that's why. And then they, yeah, they'll have banana and sugarcane a little further out, like usually like a road width away from the trees because those actually do compete but they, they stand up really tall and like grow bushy, those wind barriers, or they use like eucalyptus trees and stuff as well. So we have some eucalyptus down there. Right. Yeah. Another thing that goes with uh, disease and, and pests and stuff is a leaf rust, like coffee leaf rust. 
Do you know of any innovations that people are doing to combat this? Because I know back in 2012, Central America had this massive outbreak of coffee leaf rust, which is a fungus that Mm. we don't know too much about. And because we don't know that much, we don't know of different races of this fungus that are going to create the next mass outbreak and lose mass crop. Is there any way to, other than creating varieties that are going to be resistant to this, but is there any other ways to prevent this? I'm not an expert in this area by any means, but I believe from what I've heard that there is certain pesticides that can be used, of course, to combat this, which has its own problems with pesticides. Whether you want to do that, you kill the diversity around the trees if you spray pesticides and natural things that can occur. So there's, I think there's pesticides that can help with rust. I'm not 100% there. Also, there was like organic versions where they were saying to put, I want to say it was like lemon balm oil or something like that with hit or miss. Like some people really got mad at the organic certification people oh. because they thought they did this. They spent a bunch of money on this oil or something and it didn't do anything. Did. Oh, man. And so they lost all their crop and they spent a bunch of money. So I've heard stories there that could be misleading. We'll look into that. And yeah. Then, one thing that I read also in World Coffee Research was that uh, fertilize, like fertilizing your crop and shade mm-hmm. is effective because they said that like a well-fed plant, is going to be more resilient and and be able to combat these yeah. stressors. Yeah, that would make sense because so. anytime something's stressed, it's just I can you just think about yourself when you're stressed out and then someone comes at you and tries to kill you. You're probably gonna have a less <laughs> lower chance of defeating them in that time. Yeah, and- so maybe it's a, a combination. As a producer, you choose a resistant variety yeah. because it's and you choose one that's going to do well in this condition. Yep. Therefore, less stressed. You fertilize it, keep it well-fed, happy, resilient. Yeah. So I think it's a combination. I, th- I think I heard, I, this might be, you might be able to look into this as well, but I thought there was a way where uh, in Central America, they were doing proactive pruning of some of their leaves to combat this. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it was that because I guess if the leaves start to falter, that's when they're most susceptible. So they'll like prune off leaves that just don't look like they're doing so well early. And that kind of combats like any of these things from starting on theirs. Cause once it has a little foothold, it like yeah, kills it the takes whole tree. Yeah, it kills the whole tree. So they were doing this really early in and stopping it before it would happen. But yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to look into that. I, I heard that from one of the importers that was talking about how they do this. Cause they had a bunch of bourbon and stuff on their, on their land. And this is, I believe this was El Salvador, which had one of the worst outbreaks a couple of years back yeah. in Mexico as well. And they were, they found like their plots that they were dealing with actually were doing okay. And everyone else was like not doing well. And it, mm. they, they had said that some of their proactive like pruning and stuff like that was a big key yeah. into how they were fixing that. So, but this was years ago. So <laughs> yeah, to me, it makes sense. Yeah. A healthy plant is going to be more resilient than a plant that you're trying to force to survive pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, the idea with pruning is you're giving the nutrients to less leaves so you don't have to spread it out as much so that would make sense to me like if it could give all of its energy to like the really good parts of the tree and then it can deal with the rest the rest of its energy with dealing with pesticide or pests and all that kind of stuff coming at it so yeah yeah that might be let's give this question a a go what do you think variety is going to look like for coffee in 20 years that's interesting what's what's it going to look like how is processing even going to play a role how are producers going to kind of take a grasp at this new world pretty much for coffee 
It's a really interesting question. Uh, 20 years is quite a bit. I'm, I'm not going to have a perfect answer, but I'll speculate. I would imagine in 20 years that we have a lot more species in play that we talked about earlier. I, I feel like at that level, they might be able to figure something out that might yeah. might work. So we might have more than just Arabica, which would be really good. Definitely a lot. I'm, I'm sh- I can only imagine the amount of works being done right now with hybrids that in 20 years will probably be flourishing hopefully we've learned so much over the last 10 years in specialty coffee about what tastes good the different varieties and we've had so much uh, info that we've like documented that has never been documented before so i'd imagine they use that information to create varieties that are really good and resistant and all that and then we're yeah we're i'm sure we're planting a whole different set of trees at that point if you think about how they can, like this other species that we talked about earlier, Stephophilia or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it's called, how that was like one of the most broadly planted trees. It was the majority of all things sold and it just disappeared yeah. once something was better. This, I think the second we invent variety or a cultivate a variety that is better in all directions, that will take over a lot of the farms. Yeah. This, the same way as like kind of Castillo has in Colombia. Not that it's like the best tasting one, but the resistance and the yields are so good that it just took over the whole country in, in some way. Like it's found everywhere there. Yeah. So it's I just think, scary to think that we're going to lose some certain varieties yeah. that we like. And because if you believe in climate change, you're not. Yeah. It, things are happening and we're going to lose these varieties that we like so much. Mm. And we're going to maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe there's a, a whole whole different other scientists going to take over and we're going to be able to keep these or maybe we're going to even develop even better tasting coffee that's more resilient more productive i don't know yeah i would guess that you're already seeing it like the amount of typica that you can find in the world these days is very little actually and i think it's a super like mutated right it's it's not like it's not the same tradition yeah yeah. that it once was but even pure you know pure play like typica is hard to find i would imagine in another 10 years it's nearly impossible to find because it's all that risk reward yeah you spend five years cultivating a typica plot and then it just hits hit with rust on the fifth year it's done yeah you just wasted five years and a ton of capital so if you're a farmer, you're only doing that if you're playing in the luxury realm and you're, you can afford to lose the whole lot and it won't yeah. really play with your bigger picture, which yeah. is not a lot of farms. It's- yeah, like if you're a farmer and you, and you have two choices, hey, here's Robusta, not great tasting, super resistant though, yeah. and you can grow it anywhere. Yeah. And then you have this Typica, one little deviation in whether it be weather or, or anything, it's gone. and it's gone. Yeah. So it's yeah, a, not I, a hard calculation to make if you're living off this crop. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. Do you think producers are seeing this and saying maybe it's time to switch to not specialty, and yeah. maybe the demand might be there, but it's the risk is just not worth worth it for me to take. That's, that's a really easy calculation because when you're outside of specialty, it's all based on the C price. That's true. And so yeah. when you look at the C price that's rising, I think it's uh, at its highest point in many years today, that calculation becomes really easy because you can say I'm making, if it's a dollar fifty a pound, whatever, I think it's a dollar thirty-five or something right now, anywhere in that range and your cost of production is a dollar, 
then you're making 35 cents a pound on something commodity that you don't have to care about the quality. You can sell every little bit of the defects and everything versus what you may get in specialty if it's good, maybe a couple to $3 a pound, but you have the risk of not being able to sell anything. So if it's a for sure 35 cents, 50 cents a pound, whatever your cost of production is versus the C price, it's, it becomes a pretty easy calculation. So I, I was actually just talking to Herbert about this, uh, that like the coffees that are regionals, you know, like coffees that aren't like farm specific and these like 84, 85 point coffees are just all going to commodity because the, the people they aren't making that much more in specialty with it because it's not high enough quality to fetch the big bucks. And so they're just saying like, why would we do the extra prep, the extra work? I could just sell this all in, in commodity. Yeah. It just makes sense. Yeah. It just makes sense. When the C price is up, (laughs) it doesn't, the the sustainability in that is really bad because the C price is collapsed many times. And when it shoots down to a dollar and you make zero cents, you know, if your cost of production is a dollar, which that's actually low, most cost productions like dollar fifty, dollar seventy-five. Then it doesn't make any sense. So you have to, if you're a farmer, you have to think: Do I go into commodity and get the free money this year, and then risk next year being, you know, back down to a dollar, maybe even less? And can I get back into the specialty market? Because if you have a bunch of connections and like you're selling in specialty, and then one year you're like, yeah, I'm not going to sell to you guys this year because I can sell in commodity this year and make a quick buck then maybe you broke, broke those relations and and then you can't get back into the specialty market. So that's another you know risk reward yeah. thing you have to think about your, your relationships over the long so, run. So essentially you have everything going against specialty coffee. Yeah. yeah everything's <laughs> just against it. Yeah. Other than specialty becoming a, a thing in the U.S. and around the world where people are looking to spend more money, which we talked about, last podcast like Mm -hmm. spend more money on the coffee which means that we can send it down the line and we can pay more for the green quality of coffees that are out there so as long as we can stay if you can give the farmers 250 three dollars a pound and in c they would get a dollar fifty then that's a pretty substantial lift and a dollar over what they can earn yeah it's like life-changing so specialty as long as it can like have that pricing ability then and people are interested in buying higher quality coffees and willing to spend the money on it then we can sustain it but if you know the consumer side if last year turned into a huge recession like people thought it was going to be before the government started subsidizing everything printing all the money then you have people that maybe aren't willing to spend extra money on that coffee every day and buy the fancier bag they want to spend you know less money and if that if something happens on that end on the consumer side, then that's really that's where everything looks really bad. Yeah. As long as we have good like consumers that want to spend the money and we can actually support the farmers in specialty realms, I think it we're okay on that side. We can stay out ahead of commodity yeah. prices. Yeah. But yeah, it is looking scarier. <laughs> I think the overall message is don't take coffee for granted. Yeah. It's very fragile, I, I think. Especially very. with this genetic like bottleneck that we see and producers being maybe swayed to go to commodity and just enjoy coffee now it's i think it's like golden age right now yeah. like yeah you're a, you're a more pessimistic than i thought <laughs> i'm like right, we'll, we'll figure it out we'll figure it out but uh well, yeah i i do have faith 
Yeah. I think we are definitely going to figure it out. We're going to figure out ways to innovate. We're, we already are. Yeah. But yeah, just that's my message. Don't take coffee for granted. Yeah. It's very fragile. Yeah, actually, you asked earlier my 20 years thoughts on all that all that stuff. But you also said in processing, as long as we can continue to our pace of innovation and processing, yeah. we're going to continue to make these varieties that don't taste spectacular, taste way better through processing, I think. Yeah. So that alone is is pretty, I, I think will be good. I think it's a run. combination yeah. of everything. Producers choosing the right yeah. variety, focusing on pro- processing too, like mm-hmm. getting good at that. Also making sure customers and everyone is appreciating it properly so yeah. that we can develop these good relationships with these farmers and yeah. they feel appreciated. I think it's just a combination of everything. We have people like the world coffee research that's doing all this for us yeah i I am a little bit more optimistic yeah i mean we could even figure out like we have a bunch of varieties now i think that will hold us over they're good enough with some good processing to be amazing yeah but we could there's potentials to figure out stuff in the robusta side that could be amazing if they can figure out how to make robusta on that lineage taste good like new cultivars of robusta Canifora, and, and you maybe process that in really high quality ways, and you make robusta taste good. Then like a lot of issues are solved. What so. about carbonic maceration <laughs> yeah. robusta? I would be really interested <laughs> to try. I think Herbert was telling me that he has some someone with robusta on, uh-huh. on one of their farms, and he's going to do some experiments. Oh, because what? he's interested too. Yeah, like what would it taste it like? It just gets written off completely in the specialty realm. And so no one's even trying. Like no one's. I'm gonna take this boost and make it taste good because it's. Uh, it's there's and no chance. And right? that's the right? problem. That's why should... we're having this genetic like yeah. crisis. But if yeah. if if you figure out that, then like we're we're golden, right? Look at all the places that can grow robusta, and I'm sure it can be grown better because no one's trying to grow it well yeah. now because yeah. it's just completely looked at in a, in a bad light. So I would yeah. be that would be where I'd be most interested to see someone like. Say, you know what? I'm going to make Robusta taste good and just go crazy. Oh, man. That, that would be really interesting. If you could get some, tell Herbert to send yeah, it. would be awesome. For sure, yeah. He said he was going to try to process it. And, yeah, I'll ask him if he can send me a little sample. But, uh, yeah, I would love that because that would be that'd be key. Yeah. But there's there's stuff in Arabica, too, and yeah. and other species that I'm pretty optimistic Definitely. that we can figure it out. They figured out stuff in wine. They've got this down to a tea. There's a lot of varieties of wine that weren't that great until they really figured yeah. out how to process that I'm well. sure there's history in, in wine that kind of correlates to us too that makes sense but yeah do you have anything else we didn't really talk about the apples into varieties but we did know a little bit but yeah I, I think it's fun. I'm not too read up on that I I just know that it, it correlates it's the same I like I, I like just using the metaphor or the analogy to apples where you have species, which species would be apple and then species for us would be Arabica. And then you have varieties like we talked about, which would be Fuji, Honeycrisp, Pink Lady, Granny Smith. And then each of those have a very distinct flavor profile that you can, you can bite into one and it's like a completely different variety. Yeah. And that's exactly the same as coffee. So when you're thinking about varieties of different coffees, they have very distinct flavor profiles that if you were to process them in a way where like processing didn't add anything and just taste the coffee varieties next to each other, they would be pretty close to like how apples taste next to each other. Yeah, so you're saying that the variety itself can give a notable taste profile. Yeah, very distinctive 
different taste profiles. And it's because the natural like acid balances in them and the, the precursors to flavor that they, they have, they get unlocked during the roast. So a lot like apples, like it's like a green apple versus a red apple. Like that's a very yeah distinct difference. And we have that with geisha versus bourbon versus SL28. Yeah. And these are all varieties with very distinct flavor profiles, which I so, think is fascinating. Like independent from the terroir, yeah. Let's say you you somehow isolate it. This certain varietal or variety is going to taste mm-hmm. different from this other variety. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's not the big the like the actual big picture of the taste profile of this coffee, yeah. but it definitely adds. To they the, to they have like an intrinsic flavor to yeah. them. So like a geisha grown pretty much anywhere is going to have some level of that floral and some level of like citric in there. Yeah, because that's just key in that variety itself and as long as you're not covering it up and processing and all that yeah. so there's an intrinsic quality to that variety and the same with like bourbon is always going to have this sweet yeah like kind of apple and whatnot then that's known in that variety so they're there and it, so you can think of that the same as as apples just to think about how different flavor profiles can be yes yeah. i think it's important interestingly speaking of apples a little bit they're one of the ones where they're completely unstable. They're like our F1s. So if, if you mm-hmm. plant an apple seed out of a Honeycrisp apple, it will sprout up as a completely different variety. The, basically, the genetic material in that is a random grab bag. Mm. So when you plant it, it will have a different percentage of all these different genetics that were there, and it will sprout a whole different tree. Is it like Pacamara? Like it... it- reverts back or is it doesn't revert it's just completely different when it's wildly grown you can't wildly grow any apple tree and have it be the same variety it won't even be close so it's a complete mystery when you plant one to see what will come up so all the apple trees that we have are like the cultivars like the f1 cultivars where we have to graft off of the original tree and actually replant the graft or the clone and we can't plant the seeds itself that's so. why, yeah, I think I read something that, yeah, F1s, you can't plant seeds from F1s yeah, and get that same F1. No. You'll get something completely, well, random. It'll be like the mother, whatever yeah. the hybrid was. Originally, it'll be one of the yeah. two or three different mixtures. Yeah. So apples are just like that, and they risk the same diversity issue where if something happens to Honeycrisp, like a disease that it will wipe out all of the Honeycrisp because there's zero genetic diversity because they all come from the same tree. They're actually clones, exact oh. clones of the original. So <laughs> there's one day where like one of those varieties we love will just be gone forever because it, a disease will pop up and kill all of it. Wow. So it's really, it's similar to coffee. So it's an interesting thing to think about. Overall, just appreciate your coffee more. Yeah, please. for sure. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more, please subscribe in any of the places you listen to podcasts. For more information and where to follow us, please check out the show notes. Thank you.